The Shabbos, we have the privilege of reading Parshas Vayigash and watch uh, the continuation of our narrative unfold. You can't get a better movie than the second half of Sefer Bracious. It's just, even though every year we anticipate, we know exactly what's going to come, when you read the text, you still get goosebumps and you still get excitement and you still have the cliffhanger from one Parsha to another. And so it is with last week's Parsha, this week's Parsha, that you're left wondering, what's going to happen? Yosef accuses Binyamin falsely. The brothers sit there. There's no possible way they could return to their father without their brother and give him the news yet again of the loss of a son. What's going to be? What's going to happen? It's an intermission. And everyone sits on the end of their seat. And even though you're allowed to turn the page, we don't until the next week's Parsha because the Jewish people divide our study of Torah based on, on the Parsha of the week. So it's incredible the suspense that... Uh, that the weekly Torah reading is able to provide. So we'll do our usual uh, overview of the whole parsha, and then go back into delve into some uh, specific psukim. Our parsha begins by Yigashe love Yehuda that Yehuda uh, initiates and approaches Yosef and challenges Yosef, and he says, "How could you do this? You can't." He steps forward, and I've quoted often before one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite references: the Ramar of Moshe Isselis and Shulchan Aruch quotes from the Rokeach. Our custom of taking three steps forward when we begin our Amida, our Shemona Esrei, corresponds with the three times we have Vayigash. Avraham approaches God, Vayigash elav Avraham. Yehuda approaches Yosef, Vayigash elav Yehuda. And Eliyahu Anavi approaches. The three times we see somebody step up and stand up to make a difference for others, by the way, not for themselves, that is the precedent, that is the origin, the source of our practice of taking three steps forward for the Amidah. That means to say that when we take three steps forward to begin our Shemona Esrei, we are stepping into the footsteps, we are following and emulating the footsteps of these three great men who did not only care about themselves, turn inward, and only take um, proactive initiation when it was for their own good, but they took three steps forward when it was to advocate and lobby on behalf of others. And when we take those three steps forward to begin our Shemona Esrei, we are lobbying, we are advocating on behalf of others. The Amidah is not an exercise in our own self-centeredness. The Amidah is an opportunity to ask for a refuah shleima for others and peace in Israel. And this one's looking for a job and that one's trying to have a child and this one needs to get married and this one... We think of other people. The three steps forward, says the Ramah, quoting the Rakeach, correspond with these three individuals who were Vayigash, who took those three steps forward. A very powerful image. So Yehuda challenges Yosef and he says, you can't do this, there's no way. It's very interesting. We, we read this Parsha in isolation as I began. But if you read it as a continuation of last week's Parsha, you're bothered. Because Yehuda is in the middle of a conversation with Yosef. The very end of Miketz, Vayomer Yehuda, Yehuda says something to Yosef. Now we have Vayigashe love Yehuda. So it's as if Yehuda is first approaching Yosef, but we know he was already communicating. They were already talking. So the commentators are all bothered by this. Did he lean in? Did he speak to him privately? Is it that he redoubled his efforts and he became renewed in his, in his charge, and his energy? But it is a question when you read it from one parsha uh, to the next, when you read it straight. In any case, at this point, Yosef can no longer take it. Yosef can no longer conceal his identity. His plan had come to fruition perfectly. Why did Yosef do this all along? You would think Yosef would identify his brothers. Immediately he would reveal himself. Immediately he would embrace them. Immediately he would long to be restored and reunited with his father. What was this all about, this charade? So it was orchestrated in order to... He was doing it for his brother's sake, for his own sake. I would argue it's not only for his brother's sake so that they could do tshuva. It was also a form of therapy for himself. It was cathartic. What he did is he put his brothers through a process. He essentially put them in the exact same scenario, in the exact same situation. The Rambam Maimonides writes in Nilchus Tshuva, what is Tshuva? Tshuva is distancing yourself from the mistake that you made. It is acknowledging the past, the error. It is committing to the future. It's confessing in the present. The Rambam is all formula. But the Rambam says, what's Tshuva Gemura? What is complete repentance? To be in the exact same situation. No, you're correct. To be in the exact same situation and not do it again. The Ram actually gives somewhat of a graphic example. He says a man is isolated with a beautiful woman, and he gives in to his temptation, he has inappropriate relationship, inappropriate intimacy with her. He says tshuva would be distancing yourself, never being isolated with a woman, never being drawn to or attracted to the beauty of a woman, never being seduced or tempted to have an inappropriate relationship, that's tshuva. What's tshuva? Gemur, what's complete tshuva? 
says you're in the exact same situation. And then the Rambam throws in something very interesting. I guess before modern medicine and little pills, color blue. But he says, it doesn't mean that you're in the same situation, but you're an older man and you're tired and you don't have the same strength and vigor and you don't have the same anatomical ability to sin. He says, you're in the same situation. Rambam spells all this out, maybe as a physician. He says, you're in the same situation. You have the same strength and the same vigor and the same level of attractiveness. And yet, you persevere. You say no. That's Tshuva Gemurah. By the way, just as an aside, it's a classic question. For the Rambam, if you do tshuva properly, you can never arrive at tshuva gemurah. Tshuva means to distance yourself from the environment and the atmosphere and the scenario in which you've sinned previously. So if tshuva means to distance yourself from the atmosphere, the environment where you made your mistake earlier, how could you ever achieve the highest level of tshuva, which is to be in the exact same situation? It's a classic question. For Elul, not for Teves. <laughs> not for Nair. So in any case, Yosef orchestrates this scenario to put the brothers back in the exact same situation. And how is it the exact same situation? They have a youngest brother who is not from the same mother, because Binyamin shares a brother, father and mother with Yosef. And they have the opportunity to abandon him. They have the opportunity to walk away to leave him not in the pit of Canaan with snakes and scorpions, to leave him in the pit of Mitzrayim. Not to sell him into slavery to a passing caravan, to sell him into slavery of the palace. They have the opportunity to do it to Binyamin exactly what they had done to Yosef. All orchestrated by Yosef. And now the moment of truth. Will they repeat their error or have they learned? And Yehuda steps forward on their behalf that they have learned from their ways. They repent and they do the exact opposite of what they had done with Yosef. They take responsibility. What uh, Seven Habits... What's his name? Who wrote the Seven Habits? Covey. Stephen Covey writes, the word responsibility, the Shorash is responsibility, the ability to respond. A person who takes responsibility has the ability to respond to situations. That's what responsibility means. The etymology of the word, the Shorash. Responsibility is that you have capacity, you have cultivated, refined your ability to respond when it's demanded of you. So that's Yehuda. Yehuda, representing the brothers, now takes responsibility, something they had earlier failed to do. It's an opportunity of tshuva for the brothers, but equally, I would argue, it's therapeutic for Yosef to see. He's able to, so to say, purge the past experience by reliving it through Binyamin and seeing it occur correctly. Right? Many, many uh, psychologists, psychiatrists will tell you that a lot of, first of all, psychosomatic physical disorders and a lot of the negative energy that people carry through their lives is when they've bottled up the previous traumatic experiences and they don't have the outlet. And part of psychotherapy is to go back into the past, into that experience, relive it in a healthier way so that it can become purged. So I don't mean to project you know, psycho-drama onto Yosef, but it's as if Yosef recreates the exact same scenario, he's able to live it through to a proper conclusion, and maybe that's how he's able to, in such a healthy way, forgive something that so many others find impossible, because he's able to purge the negative energy, the negative experience and feelings by having seen the brothers correct their way. So he reveals his identity. They have this fantastic exchange. I believe we've studied in the past, it's not for now, but when Yosef does reveal himself, he has a very funny... Yosef says to his brothers, Ani Yosef, I'm Joseph. can only imagine what it would be to be a fly on the wall at that moment. Ani Yosef, I am Yosef. Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? The brothers could not possibly answer. Why? Why didn't the brothers answer? They couldn't. They were left so disturbed, so shocked, so overwhelmed in front of him. And of course we discussed in the past, what do you mean Ha'od Avichai, is my father still alive? Does he not share the father? Would he not say, Avinu is our father? Avichem is your father? The least likely is Avi, my father. Moreover, in the previous conversation, what did they just tell him? What was Yehuda's argument? You cannot do that to us. You can't keep Binyamin, our youngest brother. If you do it and we are forced to return empty-handed, what will happen? Die. Our father will surely die. 
So does Yosef know his father's alive? Yes. Absolutely. So what is he asking? We've developed in the past the idea. Yosef wasn't asking if his father is biologically alive. He knows there's a pulse. He knows there's a heartbeat. They've just told him, you'll kill our father if you don't send Binyamin back. What is he asking? Avi. Because what bothered Yosef all these years? My father hasn't come looking for me? Where's my father? That one who I spent special time with who made me that special coat who I had that special relationship with. He wants to know, Ha'ud Avi. Not is our father alive. Not is the biological Yaakov alive. Is my father the affectionate, loving, doting, special, unique relationship? Is my father still alive? That's what he asks them. And the brothers understand that they're absolutely overwhelmed by it. And then he says, relax, I'm not doing anything to you. I'm not going to kill you. It's going to be all good. And the parasha continues again. There's so much more to talk about. This is just our overview. Yosef, um, Paro joins in the welcome. Yosef gives gifts to all of his brothers. Again, it's very peculiar because Yosef gives more gifts to one brother. He gives... Yosef gives to each of them changes of clothing. But to Binyamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothing. Five times more he gave to the others. Now you would think that if there was one thing that Yosef learned from this episode, if there was one thing, it was to avoid favoritism. If there was one takeaway, favoritism particularly when it comes to clothing. How did this whole story begin? Yaakov gave Yosef the special cloak, special coat of many colors. And how does it come full circle? Yosef gives Binyamin five times more clothing than he does to the other brothers. Okay, it's a question for another time. Yaakov receives the news. He finds out that Yosef is still alive. He's overwhelmed. We have the whole story about how does Yaakov find out what is the system that they tell Yaakov. They don't want to shock his heart. They don't want to kill him. How do they tell him? Serach Bas Asher. My sister-in-law gave a great shir on Shana Goldberg on, uh, what was it, Pesach? Last year, Pesach? She gave a great shir on Serach Bas Asher, who we see keeps coming up throughout Jewish history. She has this immortality. She lives forever. And every now and then we'll see all of a sudden a reference. Who was the one who played that harp? Who was the one who uh, delivered that news? And, and my sister will develop this theme that Sarah Pasasher is the symbol of, of a calming influence. She's the symbol of the ability to deliver good news, of being a calming influence. In any case, Yaakov now undertakes to come down to Mitzrayim. The Torah lists exactly who are the brothers and their offspring and their progeny. What is the gene- genealogy? And then we have, they come down to Mitzrayim, they represent 70. Yaakov arrives in Egypt. Yosef ensures that his family lives in Goshen. That's the part we're going to go through. And he prepares them for the conversation, the dialogue they're going to have with Paro. Yaakov and Paro meet. We've talked about this in the past. They have perhaps the strangest conversation in human history. Because as you arrive at this part of the Parsha, the narrative, you get really excited. Paro is the leader of the world the leader of the greatest empire. Paro is the strongest human being on the globe. Yaakov is the leader of the spiritual world, the greatest spiritual influence on the world. These two mighty men, these two giants meet, and you expect a dialogue, you expect a communication, which is out of this world. They're going to talk about solving world hunger, bringing peace to the world, how to stop school shootings. They're going to talk about the economy. They're going to talk about spirituality. They're going to talk about monotheism. They're going to talk... Who knows what they're going to talk about, but it's going to be really exciting, right? Well, what do they talk about? Look at this conversation. It's unbelievable. Yaakov gives a blessing to Paro. Paro says to him, Hey, old man, how old are you? (laughs) To which Yaakov responds, Yemei shnei migurai shloshmas shana. How old am I? The days of my years of my journeys have been 130 years, but they've been really lousy. Few and bad have been the days of my life. I've not reached the life of my forefathers. Then the conversation ends. Yaakov blesses Paro, and he's out of there. Really? That's the conversation? So there's many, many interpretations. Not for now. I'll just tell you what I think is fantastic. The Ksav the Kabbalah of Yaakov Mecklenburg gives a great, I think, interpretation. He says the conversation is what he uses a phrase, Gemara actually uses this phrase, Dvarim shall mabikach. 
loosely translated as small talk. It says, you know, there's a value to small talk. And sometimes giants meet and you expect the most earth-shattering conversation and all they have is small talk. But what's the value of small talk? <coughs> the value of small talk, I once developed this in a drusha. The value of small talk is it reveals that you really care about the other person and care to know the other person. When you always have a conversation that has an agenda, you never really care about the other person. You care about accomplishing your agenda. But if you're willing to engage in small talk, how old are you? Where are you from? What's going on? How do you feel? What do you think about this? Then you're reaching out to create a conversation. You're reaching out to care about the other person. So there's a, there's a value to dvaram shalmabaka. Small talk has value in Judaism. It's not a waste of time and it's not meaningless conversation. Of course, we embrace the exchange of ideas and meaningful conversation. But even small talk has value because it is an exercise in, in caring about the other person, not just caring about your agenda. If you dispense with small talk and all you talk to the person about is, okay, we need to plan this, we need to talk about that, Let's, um, I, need, I, I needed to communicate to you this, then you don't really care about the other person, you just care about that agenda that you need to accomplish. Small talk is an exercise in caring about the other person. It seems like Paro is the one who's doing a little small talk and Yaakov doesn't do any. Well, Yaakov does by answering him the way he does, but you're right, he, he just gives him the bracha, he doesn't necessarily um, ask him, he doesn't reciprocate the inquiry, how old are you, and so on and so forth. It's also a very peculiar answer of Yaakov. Yaakov is the spiritual giant of the generation. Yaakov is supposed to be an upbeat, positive, optimistic force in the world. Paro says, how old are you? Nice to meet you. How old are you? He says, oh, boy, has my life been miserable. Oh, boy, has my life been tough. Oh, he's all down and negative. Why? So, there's a big discussion about this. I have many answers, but again, not for now. Okay, Yosef and the famine. That's the, that's the end of the Parsha. So, let's go back to the part that I wanted to look at this week. Namely, Shishi. What corresponds with Shishi, I should say. It's on page 260 in the Stone Chumash. Page 260, the Stone Chumash. Chapter 46, verse 28. Chapter 26, verse 28, corresponds with Shishi. So where are we? Yaakov has found out. They are now arriving in Mitzrayim. Um... They come down, the Torah gives us the number. There are 70 that come down. The nefesh, lebeis Yaakov, above Mitzrayim, is shivim. 70 that come down. By the way, did Yaakov ever find out what happened to Yosef? Yaakov ever find out what happened to Yosef? No. 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 So, maybe we'll talk more about it next week, because really the evidence is in Parshas Vayechi. It's a debate between Rashi and the Ramban. The Ramban suggests the verses in next week's Parsha make it clear that Yaakov never found out. Rashi says, tries to deduce evidence, that Yaakov did find out. But it's a, it's a fascinating... The text never tells us. From the text itself, we don't know. It leaves it open to interpretation and open to great conversation. Oh, so that's one of the pieces of evidence. Yosef didn't go visit his father often. The next week's Pasha, it's suggested because he's afraid there's no way he's going to have coffee with his father Tuesdays with uh, Yaakov and, uh, and ever be able to hold back from telling him, you know, Dad, aren't you curious where I was all those years? I mean, it happens to be bizarre if Yaakov never did find out because Yaakov, <coughs> as much as Yosef was desperate to hear from Yaakov, you have to imagine Yaakov was desperate to hear from Yosef. And you have to imagine with their reunion, each wants to know from the other, why didn't you come look for me? Where were you? What held you back? So you have to imagine Yaakov at some point said to Yosef, Yosef, my Yosef, we had such a wonderful relationship, we were so close. Where were you all these years? Okay, so you were ascending in, in, the, in, your, in your leadership in Mitzrayim. Great. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you send the messenger to me? And how did you get there to begin with? I sent you out to the field one day to check on your brothers. Next thing you know, I got a coat covered in blood. What happened? Where'd you go? What happened? Yaakov never asked. So, again, it's subject to interpretation. Maybe we'll talk about more next week. Did Yaakov know? Did Yaakov not know? 
And you can imagine how that, how that unfolds and how difficult it was for Yosef to hold back, knowing how close he was to Yaakov, how difficult it must have been to not share it, if indeed he did not share it. And if Yaakov did know, how did he ever have a relationship with his other sons again? To know that your children could treat one of the other children that way. You know, sometimes with uh, stolen children, they don't share all the details with their parents when they're reunited. Uh For many reasons, guilt, you know, I let this happen to me. It's incriminating in this case. Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, it could be also like Holocaust survivors who, the what their experiences are so dark and traumatic, some have an inability to even talk about it. So you know, Yosef went through. He he was a survivor of sorts, which we talked about last week. Yes. Oh. More than just arrogance. Excellent point, Sarah. Not just arrogance. How did Yosef get into trouble? Rashi tells us. He was a tattletale. Part of Yosef's profile was he was a tattletale. He always ran to dad to tell him what the brothers did wrong. A 17-year-old and a 39-year-old are different people. That's true, but maybe Yosef is struggling. He's working on himself to say, even though they deserve for me to tell dad, and dad deserves to know, but for myself, for my own sake, if I'm going to work on myself to repair the damage or to uh, repair my shortcoming, maybe he needed to work on himself. Why, is, why, why should Joseph think anything else but that his father was part of the conspiracy? No, he didn't have to know that. Right, he might have been suspicious, but that's part of the Ha'ura Vi Chai. So that's part of the Ha'ura Vi. My, my, my father has a temper. I right. know that from before. He right. says he could have very well... When does... Uh, Yaakov only reacts after the second dream. Right. But why should... But, he has, but there's I, no... You're going off topic and I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. But there's no, there's no motive for Yaakov to have been an accomplice. Because Yaakov loves Yosef and he favors Yosef. But from Yosef's point of view, how does he know that? I understand. He doesn't know that. Yeah. yeah. When is the last time he right. saw his father... Right. When he sent him out to the field. Right. Yeah. There's a lot that's missing from the text, and part of the beauty. Yeah, no. And part of the beauty of study of Torah, the Shivan Panam La Torah, is the ability to look at the text and to try to fill between the lines and suggest and study them before Shem. Don't be sorry, it's a great point. Yes, Helen. Right. Right. Well, let's you know what. Let, let's get into the text because ya- Yaakov is going to say something to Yosef, which maybe is very revealing. So let's see. Let's see it together. Now that we're halfway through our time, let's begin. The Shishi, um, page two sixty. Interestingly, Yaakov does not immediately hear the news and book the ticket that day and not pack, just jump on the plane and get down there. No, he sends Yehuda in advance to scout out the place. He sends Yehuda down in advance. What's the purpose of the mission? Why is Yehuda sent in advance? Says Rashi, Lehoros lefanav ketargumo, lefanos lamakom, ulehoros heach yisyashev ba. Because you can't move 70 people and not have a place to stay. You have to go on, this is the, the first pilot trip in history. He goes to identify a place and figure out where they're going to live and come up with a plan. That's why he sends Yehuda. Lefanav says Rashi, Kodem sheyagiyah l'sham, before they get there, Umedr shagad lahoros lefanav, l'saken lo beis talmud shemisham teitzei hora'ah. The Medrash Tanchuma, again if you're taking the People of the Book series, you know the Medrash Tanchuma is part of the Medrash Agada, fills between the lines. So here, the Medrash says, the word Lahoros, what does the word Lahoros have in common with? What are the word? Horah or Torah. The root of the word Torah is Horah, is to teach. So the Medrash interprets, Yaakov sent Yehuda to set up a base Medrash, to set up a yeshiva. Before we can move, and uproot ourselves from our spiritual settlement, we need to know we're going to a place with spiritual roots where we can continue to learn and continue to grow. So Rashi suggests, the Medrash suggests, Lahoros is from base Talmud, Shemesham Teitzei Go set up a base Medrash that from there, 
they can teach Torah. Good. Continuing. So now Yehuda has gone down. Why was Yehuda chosen, by the way? Makes sense, because Yehuda had asserted himself from the beginning of the parsha. Yehuda's the hero. Yehuda had asserted himself. And indeed, what? He's, he's become number one. He's supplanted Reuven. And Yehuda, indeed, becomes the model of the progenitor of leadership. After all, that's the bracha at the next week's parsha. That right, Yehuda, who descends from Yehuda, David Amelach, the Davidic dynasty, royalty, the Jewish monarchy descends from Yehuda. Yehuda becomes the paradigm of of uh, leadership. Why is that? There's a beautiful Yalkut Shimoni that has a debate. Why does Yehuda deserve the monarchy? It says one opinion is well, because in the episode of of Yehuda and Tamar, he said, Sadka Mimeni. He accused her of being a harlot on the side of the road. Then she does not uh, explicitly accuse him because she wants to save him from embarrassment. But once he understands who she is and that he indeed is the guilty party, he says, Sadka Mimeni, she is more righteous than I. But the Medrash rejects that reason. It's, that can't be why Yehuda deserved leadership and monarchy because Chote Nishar, there's a sinner prophet. He only arrived into that position to, to, to be honest, to confess the truth, because to make this admission because he was guilty. That can't be why. Then it says, well, maybe it's because Yehuda was the one who convinced them not to kill Yosef, but to throw him in the pit. Now nah, that can't be why either, because he didn't say, free Yosef, let's bring him home, we can't do that to a brother. He still had a nefarious plan. So that can't be why either. So the Medrash concludes, you know why Yehuda was worthy of leadership of monarchy? of being the progenitor of the Davidic dynasty? Ready for this reason? Because who descends from Yehuda? Nachshon ben Aminadav. And when everyone else stands between the Egyptians and the sea, when everyone else is complacent, when everyone else has all ideas of what everyone else should be doing to solve the situation, there's only one man who's at more ma'at arbei. There's only one man who doesn't have ideas and proposals and tell everyone else what to do, but actually takes action himself. And that's Nachshon. And where did Nachshon learn that from? His Eidah. He learned it from Yehuda. And says, concludes the Medrash, that's why Yehuda was worthy of being the progenitor of Malchus. Where did he see the Zaydah do that? Because Yehuda. Yehuda doesn't sit with the brothers and deliberate and argue who should do it, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it. He, he steps up. He steps up. He has what Stephen Covey would call responsibility. The ability to respond. He takes responsibility. So, so too over here, that's why Yaakov chose Yehuda to be the scout, to go down to Mitzrayim, to evaluate where they're going to live, and to set up a base medrash, and to take the lead, and so on and so forth. Pasuk Haftes. Vayasor Yosef merkav do vayalikras Yisrael aviv goshna vayirai la vayipol atzavarav vayifk atzavarav od. Yosef harnesses his chariot, he goes to meet his father, referred to interestingly here not as Yaakov but as by his alternative name as Yisrael he, where does he meet him? in Goshen a suburb of Mitzrayim he appears before him he appears before him what do you notice? lots of pronouns he appears before him and he wept on his neck a lot he appears before him and he wept on his neck. Who's he? Who's him? Who's who? What's going on in this Pasuk? What in the world is going on in this Pasuk? So first of all you see, Vayasur Yosef Merkavdo says Rashi, Hu atzma asaras asusim lamerkavali is darez lakavodaviv. Says the Medrash, Yosef is the Viceroy of Egypt. Yosef is the Vice President. Second in command, second most powerful man in the world. Does he... Fill his own car with gas. Does he put the saddle on his own horse? No. Of course not. He's got a team. He's got a group of people taking care of him. And yet the Pasuk describes Vayasar Yosef Merkavdo. Why? Rashi notes this. Because he's so excited. Liz It's a form of zrizus, of alacrity, of zeal, in order to show honor to his father. Where else do we see this? With, with Who else do we see this? Avram with the Akedah wakes up early in the morning and saddles his own donkey. Who else do we see this? Bilam. Bilam wakes up early in the morning and saddles his own donkey. 
When a person is excited, enthusiastic, they act with zeal and alacrity. It shows that they are excited. Yosef is beyond excited to see his father. So much so that he assembles his own chariot. Now we have the pronouns. Vayera elav. So let's see who says what. Who's who? Vayera elav. He saw him. Right? He appeared before him, fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck. Who's he? Who's him? And so on. So Rashi says, love, he appeared before him. Yosef nira elaviv. Yosef appears to Yaakov. That's how you understand it. Yosef appears to Yaakov. And who cried on whose neck? Says Rashi. Lots of crying. There is a, a uh, tremendous amount of crying, an excessive amount of crying. Yoser al haragil more than normal. Aval Yaakov lo nafalat zavar Yosef v'lo neshako v'amur Rabbeinu sheyakore eshema. So he appeared before him. According to Rashi, means Yosef appears to Yaakov, and Yosef cries on Yaakov's neck. Yosef is crying excessively, and how is Yaakov reacting? Like a kalta yeka. Yeah. He's, he's, I don't mean to insult any. Uh, hope I didn't offend any yekas. But Yaakov is stern. Yaakov is steadfast. Yaakov is detached. Yaakov is unemotional. Why? Because Yaakov didn't hurt. Because Yaakov isn't relieved. Because Yaakov's not emotional. Yaakov is all those things. But says Rashi, Hayakore Shema. The Medrash tells us that at that great moment, what was Yaakov doing? He was saying the Shema. Now that itself is deserving of great attention and interpretation. It's a little bit insulting to Yosef, no? Dad, say Shema in a minute. Give me a hug. Cry, give me a hug. Lean on my shoulder. You know, we'll say Shema together in a minute. We could sit and say Shema, we'll sit and learn Taira, we'll go to Shul, we'll say Tehillim, we'll offer a Korban. We'll do it all in a minute. For one minute, be my dad, give me a hug. Cry with me. Feel relief. Why is Yaakov saying Shema at that moment? He's thanking Hashem. He's thanking God. Okay. So again, thank God in a minute. Be a dad for a moment. So that's deserving of a lot of attention, but we don't have time for it now. But that's Rashi. Rashi says, Yaakov, Yosef appears before Yaakov, and Yosef is the one crying excessively, hysterically, so excited to see his tati. Says the Ramban, no, Ramban quotes Rashi, Vuliyadati tam elav. Says, if that's the case, why do I need to be told, Vayera elav, that Yosef appeared before Yaakov? If you're going to tell me Yosef fell on Yaakov's shoulder crying, then don't I know that Yosef appeared before Yaakov? It's extraneous, it's redundant. Why do you introduce it by saying Yosef appeared to Yaakov? And then Yosef cried on Yaakov. Just tell me Yosef cried on Yaakov, and implicitly I know that Yosef appeared before Yaakov. Vaud, furthermore, says the Ramban, it's not really appropriate for Yosef to weep on his father's shoulder. That's not kavod. You know, we live in a time that we have very casual relationships with our parents. People are very, very comfortable with their parents. Perhaps more than what should be. But the Ramban is saying, it's not appropriate to collapse crying, weeping on your father's shoulder. What do you do? You bow down, you kiss his hand, you show greater honor. the verse says, He should have seen his father and immediately prostrated himself before him. Whenever it says the word ode, additionally, it's adding something. And then Lo al ish yasim od, shasim al kvichatav. What's the last word of that pasuk, verse twenty-nine? He cried on his neck, od. What is od coming to add here? So the Ramban has three questions. Number one, what do you need to say, vayera love that he appeared before him? If you're going to tell me he cried on his neck, I know he appeared before him. Number two, how could you say that Yosef's crying on Yaakov's neck? That's grossly 
inappropriate. That's not proper. And number three, according to Rashi's interpretation, what does the word owed mean? The word owed needs further explanation. Says the Ramban, Va'anachon be'enai, what's correct to me, Kikvahayu e'na Yisrael k'feidim k'tas mezukan. Yaakov's eyes were failing him. He had cataracts, he had macular degeneration, he's getting old. Yosef appears on a chariot. Now, in those days, the leaders did not appear barefaced. Their faces weren't revealed. But the helmet they wore had some sort of cloak, there was some sort of covering. Yosef's identity was concealed. When he walked up with the, hat, with the, with the hat, the veil, Yaakov couldn't see him. A combination of his eyesight failing and the, you know, he's wearing a, a hat with a brim that came down on his face. The So the Pasuk tells us that when Yosef appeared to Yaakov, in other words, when Yaakov saw that it was Yosef, now picture the scene. Yosef's coming down a long, arduous journey from Canaan, caravan of 70 people, saying the whole time, are we there yet? Not sleeping much, eating lots of peanuts. Yosef, Yaakov finally is arriving towards Egypt, to Goshen. Out comes this group of chariots. There's a man leading the way, but he's wearing some kind of hat or helmet which is covering his eyes. Yaakov can't see for sure who it is, but he is so excited. What's this like? It's like when you're getting off the plane. I never have been Zoha for anyone to ever wait for me, by the way, when I get off the plane holding one of those signs. It's never happened. I'm lucky if they pick me up outside the airport. But, but you know, you, if you ever had that, you come off the plane and you're walking down that runway and you're coming out and you're looking, particularly in Israel, right, where you have that semicircle and everyone's there and little kids hanging on the railing and people holding up signs and people so excited. You've just taken a flight, 12 hours, 14 hours, a stopover. You're exhausted, but you're renewed energy, rejuvenated. You're so excited to see your loved ones. And you're looking, is that? I thought that was, no, it's still not him. Who's that? That's Yaakov. Or on the... On the other hand, you know, think about you're that person with the sign. You're watching everyone come down. Is that my loved one I haven't seen in a while? My kid coming back from Israel? You know, uh, looked like him. No, it wasn't him. So that's what's going on here. Finally, Vaira Elav, Yosef appears to Yaakov. He sees it's him. The silhouette of the man is really him. So what does he do? Yaakov collapses on Yosef's shoulder, crying, says the Rambam. Not like Rashi. And how did he cry? He cries like the tears that he cried every day when he didn't see him. When he saw that it was Yosef, he cried, He cried more. What is the ode now that Ramban is answering? Ramban's answered all of his questions. Why do you need to say Vayera Elav if you're going to say Vayipol Atzavarav? The answer is it's two different people. Vayera Elav is Yosef appearing to Yaakov and Vayipol Atzavarav Vayevk is Yaakov crying on Yosef. Why does it say Ode? Ode means he cried more. Not Yosef cried more. The crying is Yaakov. And the more means that this was, he cried more than the crying he did for every day that, ya- that Yosef was missing. Every day that Yosef wasn't there, missing in action, Yo- Yaakov sat and cried. And now when he's finally reunited, he collapses on his, son, sh- on his son's uh, shoulder, like I'm sure Gilad Shalit's father did to Gilad Shalit, and he cries yet again. It looks superficially like the same tears, but it's altogether different tears. It's tears of joy rather than tears of sadness. And now he was able to say what is the next prophet that we'll look at in a moment. Now I can die now that I've seen your face. And says the Ramban, this is a known thing. Who's going to cry more? The son who, yeah, he was disconnected from his family. But you know what? He turned out to be the richest person, a viceroy, a powerful person, married, two children, happy, happy to see his father. But now he's in a position of royalty. 
or the old man who never stops sitting shiva, the old man who hasn't stopped crying, the old frail man who has been broken, who's been a broken shadow of himself. Says the Ramban, who's likely to be the one crying more? It's the older man. So who he says is likely to cry more? A parent for a child or a child for a parent? It's the parent for the child who's going to cry more. This is Yaakov crying for Yosef. Now, I like the Ramban's interpretation better than Rashi for the reason that I alluded to earlier, which is, it seems very cold and sterile to think that at the moment of the reunion, Yaakov says, before I can cry, hug you, let me finish saying Shema. It's a little difficult for us to really absorb. The Ramban's interpretation, the beautiful drama and description, that Yaakov is crying hysterically, seeing Yosef again, because a parent, an old, frail man who is a shadow of himself, is crying because he's reunited. And after all those tears of pain, finally there are tears of joy. Ode, he cries again. But it's a different type of crying. I love the Ramban's interpretation. The Svarno says, Why the name change? Why the name change? I didn't see any of the Mephoshim here exactly say it. Perhaps I would suggest that Yisrael is the description of Yaakov not as the person, but as the destiny of a nation, of a people. And maybe in this moment of reunion, the destiny of the people is, is coming true. This reunion represents the next step in the fulfillment of God's promise. They're going to be in Egypt and so on and so forth. It's a fulfillment of that Yaakov can now be Yisrael, the progenitor of the destiny of the people. The Svarna says, Vayera love. Svarna says, means that Yosef emerges from all of his servants. Approaching Yaakov was a whole conglomerate of people. It was difficult to identify Yosef from the entire group. means Yosef stepped forward. Yosef identified himself from everyone else. But anyway, all of these pronouns in this Pasuk, we have a fundamental debate between Rashi and the Ramban, who is crying upon whom, who revealed himself to whom, and the different interpretations that come with it. Okay, continuing. Next Pasuk. Yisrael, Yosef, Yaakov now says to Yosef, now I can die again. Now that I've seen your face, that you yet remain alive. What do you mean, Amus Apam? Says Rashi Pshuto Kitargumo. He says, I thought I was going to die two deaths. I thought I would have no immortality in either world. I would die in this world when my body would give out. And I would die in the future world. I would have no immortality through a son who would continue my legacy. But now that I see that you're alive and that you continue in my way, now, now I know that I've achieved a level of immortality that even though when I'm physically not here and will physically die, I have a spiritual immortality because you have embraced my way. It's a beautiful Rashi. Yeah, that's not so nice to the other brothers who also... Right. He's going to continue in his ways. Right. So, um, yeah. See the Svarno. Svarno says, He says, I was saved from other calamities. But after I was saved from them, I continued to be haunted. The Svarno gives an altogether different interpretation. He says, The previous hardships I went through, though I survived them, I never recovered from them. I died a death from them. Yes, I'm still here, but a piece of me died when I had to lie for my brother. Piece of me died when I had to live with my uncle. Piece of me died when I was lied to by my wife. A piece of me died when I was on the run. A piece of me died when I had to reunite with Esav. A piece of me died. A piece of me died when when my sons killed the people of Shechem. My daughter was abducted. I went through crazy hardships as Yaakov, and a piece of me died with everyone I went through. 
They continue to haunt me and traumatize me until today. But he says, now, Amusa Hapam, now that I see you, it's closure to this whole thing. Please God, I won't carry it with me and it doesn't have to haunt me. That's how the Svarno interprets. Very interesting psychoanalysis. Very interesting interpretation. The Kliyakar of Lunchitz says, Until now, when he was separated from his son, he thought he was killed, his life was miserable. And a person who has a miserable, painful life is as considered to be dead even when they're alive. They feel as if they're dead. They feel as if they're lifeless. They feel as if they've been removed from the world. Now that it says that the spirit of Yaakov returned, his charisma, his energy, he's alive. Now he's only going to die one death, namely after 120. But he won't die the death of living with suffering. And that's what he meant. Rabbi, didn't Yehuda also give him a lot of joy in his life? Yes, but he had the death of losing a son. I understand. People who have tragically left, lost a child, there's a piece of them that dies with that child. They never fully recover. So they experience multiple deaths in their life. There's the death when they leave this world, but there's a piece of them that left the world already. There's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a tragedy. So Yaakov now says, I've been spared that experience because I see Yosef, you're still here. I thought that I died a death already, but now that I see your face, I've been spared that experience, and I know, Amusa Hapam, that I'm only going to die at the end of my life. Because a person who goes to a challenge where a piece of them dies, every day there's a level of death. You know, there's somebody who lost a child who once expressed to me something it ached in my stomach when I heard them say this. They said, when they lost that child, every day that they woke up, it was so painful to be awake, they just wanted to stay asleep. Being awake was painful. Not when they thought about him, it was painful. When they saw a picture of him, it was painful. When they saw their other children, it was painful. There were times during the day it was painful. They said, being awake was painful. They, couldn't, they didn't want to wake up. They wanted to sleep all night and all day. Being awake was painful. You hear that, it, it aches. You, you can hear that. So that's what Yaakov was saying. All these years, Yaakov wanted to sleep. He didn't want to be awake. That ache, that, that, that hole in one's heart, the pain of just being awake. He says, thank God, I'm Musa Now I know I'll only die one death. I've been restored to life. I'm alive yet again. Very powerful, very powerful puzzle. Very powerful imagery. And the Mepharshim here all fill in in a very beautiful way. Mm-hmm. The Orachayim HaKadosh also has something to say. I don't know that we have the time to read it. Let's keep going. I'll just tell you what the Orachayim says outside. Oh, let's read the Orachayim. The, the third paragraph of the Orachayim. Skip to the third paragraph. Kavanas Devar Yaakov him. What Yaakov meant was, baser ki odenu chai. When he received the news that he's still alive, Zahoil Adash Yeshno He knew that, ya- Yose- that Yosef was still alive. The brothers return, they come up to Canaan and they tell Yaakov, Od Yosef Chai, Yosef's still alive. So he already knew. So what kind of reaction is this? Amusa Pam. Yaakov says, I know Yosef's still physically alive, but I wonder what's left of him. Yosef's a survivor. When someone's a survivor, they too lose a piece of themselves. Shafal Eved Moshlim. Yaakov says, I know where Yosef's been all these years. Now that you've come back to me and told me that Yosef has risen to the viceroy of Egypt, he's been in Egypt all these years. You might as well tell me Yosef's been living in, 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 in Las Vegas. Yosef's been living in some decadent, decrepit, some lascivious, licentious society. What's going to be left of my Yosef, who I learned with every day? My tzaddikal. What could be left of him if he's been living there? I need to see with my own eyes. There's a level of relief in knowing Yosef's alive physically. But is Yosef still alive spiritually? 
He hasn't been under my influence and my teaching. What's left of Yosef spiritually? He goes on and on here the Yorchaim. But he says, that's what Yaakov meant. Now that I see you're still alive, I am still alive. Not that you're still alive physically, but says the Rachaim HaKadosh when he confirmed that Yosef was still alive spiritually. Now, we didn't even get to what I wanted to speak about today. What I want to talk about today is the next few Sukkim. I find it fantastic. Yosef now preps the brothers for the conversation they're going to have with Paro. And the purpose of the whole preparation is to result in their ability to live in Goshen, the suburb of Mitzrayim. He does not want them getting enlisted into, ya, into uh, the Egyptian army. So he wants them to appear like some frail Nebuch shepherds. They're incapable of serving in the army. He only introduces Paro to some of his brothers, the weakest among them, not the big strapping ones. And he tells them, I need you to tell, ya, tell Paro that you're, she, you're shepherds, but you can't say shepherds because these animals in Mitzrayim are gods. You, they don't like shepherds. Here's how you have to phrase it. There's a tremendous amount of preparation that goes into this. I think it's fantastic. I'm going to likely write about for the weekly this week that you know my, my uh, oldest daughter and I had the uh, privilege last week of attending the Hanukkah party at the White House. And uh, my daughter Rachel had the chance actually to speak to the President and First Lady a little bit. So... Trust me, we rehearsed what she was going to say. <laughs> this wasn't going to be a spontaneous conversation. If you get a minute with essentially the most powerful man in the world, you know, with all due respect to the Ksav Kabbalah of Mecklenburg and Dvaram Shamabakach, small talk, it's not an opportunity to shoot the breeze. And my daughter really came through, and I'll write in the weekly what, what she said and why I'm so proud of her. But, but this is... So it resonates with me, it resonates with me that Yosef, Yosef talks to the brothers and says, let's prep. And the message to take away from me is, both from the Parsha and from my experience last week, we have the privilege of meeting the leader, not of the world, the leader of everything, the master of the universe, three times a day. How much prep do we do to our conversation with him? Do we measure every word? Do we think what we want to ask him? Do we, do we anticipate the conversation with such enthusiasm? Or do we have Dvaram Shalmabakach with the Almighty Himself? It's a very powerful thing to realize. The contrast of the, the awe and reverence we bring to the Melech Basar Vadam and what we should have for the Melech Malchayam Lochem is a very uh, powerful thing. But here Yosef preps his brothers. I'm going to take you into Paro. You're going to get a few minutes with the, in the Oval Office. Here's what you need to say. Here's our goals. Here's what I want. Why did he want his brothers to live in Goshen? Why Goshen? Why in the suburb? He wants them to be separate, but I will remind you of a Rav Hirsch we studied. We studied the statement of Rav Hirsch when Rav Hirsch says that Avram finally gives birth to Yitzchak. Yitzchak moves to Gerar. Yitzchak moves to in southern Israel. And the refer says specifically he moves them to a suburb. He doesn't want them to be in the metropolis, in the big city. He wants them to be in a suburb because he wants them to be exposed, remember refer says, exposed to the world, but also somewhat protected and sheltered, finding that combination that balances the task of a Jew. And maybe Yosef is following in that footsteps to bring his brothers and father to Goshen, a suburb where they'll be exposed to society and yet at the same time somewhat shielded from it. Okay, we had much more to talk about, but we will have to stop here. Thank you.